Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and I'm a licensed marriage therapist in the state of Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist. You can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Now, today I'm interviewing Christina. How do I say that last name? Manessis. Manessis. I was totally going to mispronounce it. So <laughs> it's good that I did it correctly there. So, Christina Manessis is with YWCA Shade, which is sexual health and disability education. So, quick bio, Christina. Christina has worked in the field of abuse prevention for more than 20 years. She spent much of that time doing traditional abuse prevention presentations in the St. Louis area. And in the last five years with Shade, she has provided relationship and sexuality education to individuals with disabilities, agencies that they might encounter, and parents and guardians. Thank you for joining me today, Christina. You're welcome. Excited to be here. I'm glad you're here too. Well, so tell me a little bit more about like all the crazy things you do to help out people. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big, broad question, yeah. right? <laughs> like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So I first started working at the YWCA um, and really my interest was in sexual violence prevention. Um and so I had come from school. I had done this work as an internship. I came back to the Y saying, I would like to do this full time. Can that happen? And so I did that for about 14 years. Um, and I was doing three to 500 presentations a year, seeing nine to 10,000 people a year. That sounds like a lot of people and presentations. Were you exhausted? It was a lot. <laughs> I really, you know, had to figure out what my boundaries were and how Say much no was every too now much. And then. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was great and it was fun and it was nice to be able to do something often enough that I felt really good and competent at it. Yeah, sure. So that was great. Um, and then I was... So I had been doing this work. I'd been doing all of this reading. I was involved in sexual violence prevention. And then I had this opportunity to go to a conference in Colorado that was really highlighting the intersection of abuse and disability. Okay. And it was a three-day conference. Um, the first day was pretty much just all stats and mm -hmm. the prevalence. And I remember sitting there in that workshop and just being overwhelmed by the numbers. Um, like by how much was going on in that community? Yeah, by the rates of sexual violence against folks with disabilities. Oh, wow. Numbers I had never seen before. And I remember sitting there thinking, how is it possible that I've already been in this field for 10 years hmm. and I don't know this information, right? And so I have a theory about that. My theory is that when you take a topic that a lot of people don't want to talk about, like mm -hmm. sexual violence, and you add a population that we have rendered invisible in many ways, and you put those two things together, we have created the perfect storm for vulnerability. Can I ask you, why do you think... Why are they? Why do you say they're invisible in some way? Like, yeah, tell me all about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know in the field of sexual violence prevention for as many agencies are doing the work, as many people who are doing it and as many people who are talking about it, there are some populations that still continue to be on the margins of the way we think about prevention. And so if you come into the field, you get a smattering of training mm -hmm. about people with disabilities, for example. Um, but it's not core and center to the way we construct narratives mm -hmm. about abuse and things like that, right? And and the more that I've learned about this, I now um, stole, we 
my agency stole stole a framework from um, Dave Hingsberger, who's done a lot of work in this area. Well, and And, everybody knows the best way to get things is through thievery. Right, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And so he has done a lot of work in this area, and he came up with... Um, the ring of safety, which is six protective factors hmm. that reduce the risk that somebody with a disability will be abused. Okay. And so those protective factors are comprehensive sex ed, privacy awareness, knowledge of your rights, healthy self-esteem, the ability to non-comply, and having someone who listens. Well, and even just listening to those two, I think those are relatively reasonable things for most people to know. And oddly, with sex education being so terrible in this country, <laughs> a lot of people don't know what to do yes, with those things. Absolutely. It's like what I can advocate for myself. Yeah. Crazy. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I think that yes, yeah, so so we have this baseline, right, for people for able bodied, neurotypical people without disabilities, um, that is, as you say, pretty terrible in terms of sex ed yeah. and those skills. Yeah, nobody talks about anything ever. Yeah. <laughs> and then you add the disability piece. And, and then we've created additional barriers and additional hurdles, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, when it comes to privacy, um, depending on the kind of disability folks have, they might have a different understanding of what privacy means. If, sure. for example, they're getting, you know, physical care mm-hmm. through adulthood, then their understanding of privacy, what parts of their body are private, who gets to look at them, touch them, that kind of thing mm-hmm. could be different. Right? Well, and like to add to that, there are some people who have disabilities that actually need assistance to have sex, correct? Yes, absolutely. So you have to kind of redefine what privacy is if you're going to be intimate in some sort of way. Yes, Absolutely. What kinds of help might somebody, I mean, like, let's go into the bedroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What would that look like? So there's a wide range. And um, so there's everything from, I I think a lot of it for many folks with disabilities, depending on their disability, are just possibility models. Okay. Right? Because one of the things that also is challenging is we don't have a lot of models in our media of folks with disability having happy, healthy sex lives. Yeah, what that would look like. Right. And so and so folks with disabilities themselves, let's say physical disabilities, may not be sure. They might have to pave the road for themselves. Right. Like, there might not be a model at all. And so it's like, okay, well, what does healthy sex have to look like for me with maybe an assistant or an aide? Right, exactly. Or, you know, there are some resources, but you have to go find them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then for folks with other kinds of disabilities, let's say non-physical disabilities, I think a lot of the clients that I work with, sometimes their guardians bring them in as clients kind of in early adulthood Mm -hmm. because they kind of, as, as guardians and parents, I think were so overwhelmed Mm -hmm. with just raising their child with a disability that I think what often ends up happening is that folks with disabilities end up being desexualized. And so there's an assumption that folks with some kinds of disabilities just aren't sexual and are not going to be sexual and therefore don't need information. Which is unfair because most people want to be sexual people. Yeah. I have at least one story I'm thinking of from actually long ago. I used to work with traumatic brain injury Uh back in Oregon. And um, so people could be at different various ranges and abilities with that, right? But I remember we had this conversation and it was a sex ed conversation, but basically two two people, both in a wheelchair, wanted to have sex and, and they loved each other. They enjoyed each other, but the guy was kind of coming to us privately and saying, 
you know, I want to have sex with her, but she has some incontinence issues. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to bring up to her that it would be nice if we took a shower first Mm -hmm. before we had sex and maybe did oral sex. Right. (laughs) And it was just an interesting like conversation. Of course, we helped them have that conversation, but like something I would have never thought about for like, oh, well, (laughs) I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. But at the same time, a perfectly reasonable thing to be very embarrassed to ask. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, and I think about also just the effect that, so when it comes to advocating for what you want, right? Mm -hmm. I think the reason that knowledge of your rights and having healthy self-esteem are protective factors is because, as you say, in general, our baseline is we are don't teach people to be really great at advocating for what they want when it comes to sexual things. And so then for folks with disabilities, you add on the component of ableism, mm-hmm. where many folks with disabilities get a message overt or covert, that they are a burden on society, that they are too much to handle. Is that what ableism is? Is that what you're describing right yeah, now? Yeah, so okay. ableism, like oppression against folks with disabilities, Okay, right? Okay. So, um, But then the message from that, the covert or overt, is that they're not good enough in some way, and right. they're a burden to society. How dare they, whatever, you know, right, yada, right, yada, right, yada. Right, right. How dare you want to have sex right. in a healthy sex life or a relationship? Right, and, and then on top of that, how dare you, once you have one, have needs that mm-hmm. you you want to advocate for, right? And so I think mm. I think a lot of folks who are in oppressed groups may internalize a message that they are less than, right? Okay. Um, or sometimes that they're imposters, that we are imposters, right? And if people really saw us, they would kick us out. Oh, right. Um, And so I think that this is true with a number of oppressed groups, including folks with disabilities. So, so, I mean, I think the unfortunate truth is there are some, there are some really great programs and services for folks with disabilities in the United States, certainly better than they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a lot of the ways that folks with disabilities are treated is still compliance training. And so, what does uh, compliance training mean for anybody listening? Yeah, like, what do you so, mean? So it's, I'm gonna have to make you define every no, single that's thing. Okay. That's not annoying at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot about saying that. A, so if I'm a staff person or a teacher, that my job and kind of how I measure success is how well my students obey what I tell them to do, right? Um, and there, are, and and if this is a program, then this could be. Um, as you know, we have some old models that the staff person gets to decide what time it is to eat, also gets to decide what gets cooked. And mm. so if you're in a home with four people, then it's um, we've had some kind of old models that were about, well, this is what I'm cooking and I'm the one who's cooking. So you have to eat what I'm serving, right? You don't have a choice in the matter. Right, Whereas exactly. adults, shouldn't they kind of have a choice in what they want right, and what they exactly. live? Exactly. And, and yeah, so, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And so a lot of, uh, I think a lot of navigating around folks with disabilities has been how to get them to do what other people want them to do. So obviously that dovetails terribly when it comes to abuse prevention. And you have, so you have folks who may have been trained to comply and not not just trained, like there are real 
punishments for non-compliance, right? What like so, what kinds of punishments? So it could be everything in a classroom for you don't get the treat that you were promised, right? To you get put out of class. Um, as folks get older, this could be a threat to whether or not they get to remain in a particular program that they really like. Or that they can afford. Yeah, or that they can to, afford. You know, mm-hmm. quality of life here, right? Right, exactly. And then it can also be uh, to the extent of where you get to live, right? Like if you don't comply, you don't have housing. Yeah. And so there are some real, real consequences for non-compliance. So what you're saying is there's the whole group of people that has been kind of trained in this compliance model, both the workers and the people with disabilities working through these situations. And that doesn't lend itself to people like basically becoming an adult and having your own choices, being able to advocate for, well, what if I don't want to do this? Or what if I have a different opinion? Is that okay? Because it's never been okay to have your own opinion. Right. Exactly. And and even sounds like elementary school actually. Right? No, I mean it. It really <laughs> is dehumanizing, and yeah, yeah. It, actually, I hated elementary school for that reason because mm-hmm. I'm one of those like independent thinkers. It's like you're not my dad, and you don't get to tell me what to do. It right. didn't bode well for me. Right, right, right. <laughs> and and I've had to become incredibly aware, and I'm still working on this as a person who doesn't have a disability, mm-hmm. like. Um, how am I using my power and how am I using my privilege so I am not just reinforcing, right? Yeah. And, and so how do I really give people choices about what they want to learn and whether or not they want to be in this class and, mm-hmm. you know, what activities we do or don't do? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, so I think that that is really important. And sometimes that is, depending on the setting we're in, the other folks around the people we're working with, mm-hmm. um, I think are a little bit shocked. Maybe, at, maybe scared, actually. Like, what do we do if they have their own beliefs right, and value systems? Right, right. <laughs> or, you know, like like we'll get calls from, from people who will say, um, we want this training to come in, but we're pretty sure nobody in the group wants to date, that they just want to learn about friendship. Okay. So okay. I so as I come in and I do an intake I'm going to ask them what they want to learn and what do we do if some of them say they want to date? What is your boundary, right? Mm-hmm. Are we going to go forward because if it were up to me we would go forward. Of course. Right? But but so sometimes a lot of times the conversations we have to have around kind of creating safer spaces are not just with the folks that we serve, mm-hmm. but about everybody around them. Well, let's talk about that because I was just thinking about that and like family members, yep. caretakers, yep. they probably have an opinion on whether yeah. or not their um, family members should date or yeah. not or have sex. So what kinds of things do you see happening there? Oh my gosh. There's <laughs> Tell such, me your horror stories. There is such a range. So so we work with folks both individually and groups. And so if folks, if families don't want us to come in individually, we never hear from them, right? Sure. Um, where we are more likely to encounter that is when we go in and we are being brought in, let's say, by a school and mm-hmm. the school, and it's being offered to a whole classroom of kids and a third of them come back with signed permission slips. Right. And so that's a lot. What happens there? Then you have to like pick the other ones out and they're not allowed to learn. Yeah. Do you know what's crazy about that to me? When people have better sex education, they wait to have sex later. I know. Like 19, 20, 30, some of them. Not that I'm not saying you can't have sex when you're young. You do you people. Right, right, (laughs) right. Whatever. uh But like 
I've just noticed when people have an education, they advocate for themselves better. They they respect sex more. And so they just they just don't go in willy-nilly right. having sex with anyone. You know right. what I mean? And that doesn't mean you can't have casual sex because to each person their own, you get to be your own unique snowflake. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying yeah. that I've noticed is the more advocacy people have, the more education, they respect it. They're smarter. They use condoms and birth control. They don't have teen pregnancies unless they're that teen that really does want to have a child. But it's really rare. I got to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like with better sex education, then folks are more capable of getting what they want, the good stuff out of sex, and yeah. less of the bad stuff, right? And it transfers to the other parts of life. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that when people are good at advocating for themselves in sex, which is one of the most taboo topics, by the way, then that's like the key to life. Just so you know, I gave that for free. The key to life <laughs> is being able to advocate for yourself sexually because if you can do it about the most vulnerable topic, you can do it for everything else. And right. it's so true. Right. Well, and what's so interesting is I think when people think sex ed, like there is this hyper focus on mm-hmm. what body parts are you going to be talking about and whether or not you're going to be talking about contraception, right? Yeah. And so that's those are certainly things that we cover, but so much of our education is about boundaries. Yeah. Is about boundary setting, about mm-hmm. respecting other people's boundaries. Consent. Yeah. <gasps> Consent. So and, important. And then is also about kind of getting to know yourself mm-hmm. and just your likes and dislikes and getting some tools about being able to communicate what you like and don't like, right? So Mm -hmm. all of these skills, as you say, transferable to so many aspects of life. Yeah, just think about work. Oh, I'm comfortable with this. Not okay with this. I'm okay with this. Let's set a boundary. I don't like you. You're not my dad. You know, Yeah. I use that a lot, but I really feel that often in life. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny to me, the more that I teach this, the more I believe that almost every human being that I know of could benefit from ongoing sex education. I agree. I mean, really, you know, I was just thinking, you know, when you talk about your boundaries, I was thinking of teens and sex. I know this isn't exactly about teens and sex, but it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody has sex at some point. So like teenagers, even if they know that you can kiss, like that could be a boundary. I'm ready to make out, but I'm not ready to do anything else. Is that cool? Yeah. Yeah, There's a consent there. And a lot of what I do when I'm teaching clients of all kinds is teaching them that really they should be consenting the whole way and how to make consent sexy. Did you know you could be flirty consensual? It's totally hot. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's totally. and, and, And I mean, I think as we move towards a place where affirmative consent becomes the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I is, like that phrase, affirmative yeah, consent. It's going to be, it's going to require skills mm-hmm. that many of us are not socialized into. Um, and so it's going to require skills about knowing ourselves, being able to ask for what we want, mm-hmm. being able to take rejection, being able to say yes, no, maybe, being able to negotiate, mm-hmm. and depending typically on your gender socialization, these aren't necessarily all the things that you learn, right? You know, something you said that just like really struck a bell for me is accepting rejection. Yeah. Oh like, my gosh. How could that be a valuable thing oh for people gosh. in your client population? Yeah. Well, we totally, <laughs> so another thing that we stole um, was this no workshop idea. And I think we stole it from Sex Positive St. Louis. And and so it's just an opportunity for people to meander in a group for like 30 seconds, ask people to do non-sexual things and get rejected. And your goal is to get rejected as many times as possible. And then we just debrief that and we talk Mm -hmm. about 
what it felt like to say no and what it felt like to hear no Mm -hmm. and how we give our no's. And so typically when we give no's, we give a no with an excuse or a no with a little bit of an open door. So no, but maybe later. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, and so we so then I so then we debrief that. and, And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And so what is that? feel like about our ability to set boundaries. You're essentially teaching people distress tolerance for the experience of rejection and deep abandonment because that's what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so so in our debrief, nobody loves me. This is part of the conversation we have, right? About how Mm -hmm. we take that no as, oh, Angela doesn't want to go get Froyo with me right now as opposed to Angela has rejected me as a human being. Yeah, a deep abandonment, rejection, and now I have to kill myself, right? right? Please don't kill yourself. Just to send, you should live. You're all important people. Right. But I'm just yeah. saying it can feel that intense. That's yeah. like, oh my God, why am I even living right now? Right. Well, and, and I think with rejection training, because we don't have good rejection training, our go-tos mm-hmm. are either that, well, our go-tos are either that we get aggressive and or mad and we keep pushing. Or you beat yourself up. Yes. I know that yes. one. Take it or personally. Or we beat ourselves up and we decide we are never going to put ourselves out there again. Right? Oh, wow. And I think that we I need- see that in the office all the time. And I'm like, guys, it's okay. Yeah, right. And so we need some healthy medium about how to be rejected and how to be rejected well and gracefully. And to still have, oh, going back to your model, self-esteem at the end of it. That getting a no doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're not lovable or even that you can't potentially find that later on. You just solved the crisis for why people can't fall in love, Christina. Oh. I just realized it. Like, no, no, because part of, I know you're like, thank you. I'm just so glad you did. Here's what she did. I want everybody to hear this. So why it's important to be able to accept rejection is that you're not going to get every single time with every single person. And a big part of falling in love is being able to be vulnerable. Yes. To put yourself out there. And vulnerability means sometimes you're accepted, but sometimes you're rejected. But at the end of it, you live to tell the tale. You're okay, but it doesn't mean you do that thing you just said where you pull back and you never try again until you're basically a shell of a person living in a cave or your own house with your own car but it's the same to me yeah absolutely (laughs) well and I think that so much of rejection training is about how we change our script of what it means to get rejected right so how do I move away from rejection as they don't know any better and so therefore I have to change their mind or Uh, I'm a terrible, horrible human being to thank you because now that you've rejected me and in such a clear way, then I can use my energy looking for other people who are going to match what it is I'm looking for, right? Mm -hmm. And like what a gift you've given me of this very clear rejection. Yeah, you get an like I my kind of motto in life I think in general is put out there who you are in your most authentic way and what you'll do is you'll draw in people who are like-minded who love your crazy. Yeah. And everybody's got a little crazy. Actually, the people who freak out when you call them crazy tend to be pretty crazy, just so y'all know. <laughs> But for the most part, the rest of us are like, yeah, I'm totally crazy. And we all have our little quirkiness, right? But if you can just be your authentic self, set your boundaries, then you're either going to attract people who are cool with those boundaries and who love them, or you'll detract people who aren't. And really, you want to detract those people anyways. Right. And going back to the disability piece, I think that this is another thing is that I think in general, we we have created such a narrow idea of what people have to do to be 
sex to be uh, oh, yeah. to attract sexual partners, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we all of us need to expand that idea so of that, what it means to be sexual, even the definition. Yeah, and okay. so so that we don't have because I I think a lot of pressure that some folks with disabilities are under is um, hiding their disabilities, minimizing their disabilities, mm-hmm. um, or kind of just treating their disabilities with shame. Yeah. Right. And those things tend not, I don't think, tend to be not necessarily great for relationship building mm-hmm. um, and your relationship with yourself and your confidence and all of those things. Right. Because well, you can't put your full authentic self out there if you're ashamed of it. Right. Right. And right. going back to what you were saying, I mean, look at what we see culturally. You only see very young, very beautiful, very perfect bodied, very able bodied yep. people in culture. You don't see anybody outside that norm. So basically, if you're anything outside of that mold, then you're not allowed to be a sexual person. Right. If you're that narrowly kind of getting your view. But then if you also have caregivers, you also have parents or family members giving you the same message, where in the world is the definition for how I get to be a sexual person with some form of disability? Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, that's why we do the work that we do. That's really awesome. Yeah, it's not an area... I mean, there are some places around the country and the world that are doing this, and we're so excited to hear about them. Yeah. But it's still, um, Kayla, my coworker, and I laugh because when it comes to kind of national disability conferences or uh, uh, sexual abuse conferences or sexuality conferences, mm-hmm. we tend to get a lot of invites to all of those because nobody is doing, very few people are doing this trifecta. Mm-hmm, where you put it all together. Yeah, yeah. You were saying somewhere on your questionnaire, like it's easier to get um, invited for abuse yeah. prevention than yeah. it is for sex education. Yes. Why is that? And, well, so thank you, first of all, to all of my foremothers who laid the groundwork for good touch, bad touch training. Sure. Right? Yeah, somebody put something out there. Yes. And they weren't accepted at first, but I think but I think that lens, even though it the 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 taboo that I hear have heard from um from adults when I've offered that kind of training is either uh, that doesn't happen to our kids or it doesn't happen to kids this young and we don't want them exposed to something that young, right? Uh And so that tends to be the issue. Um, But when you frame it, for most places that I have asked, when you frame it as a health and safety issue, Mm -hmm. especially I would imagine now even more so, like people are dying to have this information to get people trained. And I think that, that the sex ed is continues to be taboo. One, because as you said, people believe that if if we teach sex ed, people will want to have sex when they didn't want to have sex before. <laughs> like the desire didn't exist right, already, exactly, like exactly. on your mind all the time, yes. and, especially and, during your teenage years. <laughs> and despite all of the research to the contrary, right, that that's not well, what Well, did happens. you know that like Kellogg's, like the corn yeah. cereals were created yeah. because they thought this might help people yes. not masturbate as yes. much. And like, we're just really trying to create bland foods, just so you know, <laughs> helps people with their masturbation problems. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. <laughs> I know. Fascinating. It's like, who is this graham cracker guy? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first. So that's the first piece. And I think the second piece is, which is tied into that, is like the way we teach sex is we talk about pleasure, 
right? And How so, dare you? Yeah, and so <laughs> from certain viewpoints, sex is only procreative or in these very narrow places. Yep. And, and you can do preventive, like, you know, yeah. birth control and condoms. But beyond that, yeah. how dare you talk about yeah. it being pleasurable, especially to young people? Right, right. What are you? <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and I think what people have picked up is that we are advocating for people to make their own decisions about their own bodies, right? <sighs> and Free not, will, too. Right. Sorcery. <laughs> right. And, and so... Actually, like, that's why they burned the witches, isn't it? <laughs> it's always women wanting to give people free ideas. Yeah. One of the other things that I didn't really understand until I saw a clip the other day that was like this documentary about the terribleness that is comprehensive sex ed is that there was a particular framing out in the world that that the way we teach sex ed is counter to families. Really? And, yeah. And, and And so it's something that I'm not incredibly familiar with and I given the little bit of the documentary I'm not sure that I want to see it but but there was definitely a framing that is saying that by what we're doing is we're putting responsibility and choice making in the hands of the young people primarily and a, and and that is seen to be taking it away from their parents and guardians and mm. we I mean this is a fine line because again People have guardians, sure. and we know that they have a lot of power about whether or not we even get to see folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the line that we, what we try to say is that as sex educators, um, it is somebody else's job to provide you with your values. And so those values about when you have sex, mm-hmm. what kinds of relationships you have sex in, like that's somebody else's job. Our job is just to tell you what is. Right. Yeah. And so these, the research, the information, yeah. what's out there, yeah. the communication skills, that sort of thing. That's right. And if so, if somebody asks me, can I do X or Y, I'll answer from a legal perspective. If there's a legal perspective, I'll help them think through and then I'll also help them think through consequences. OK. And those consequences might be the consequences that their guardians or others are imposing on them. And then I leave it up to them. Okay, so now we've talked about it. You have this information. You go forward how you're going to go forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so thank you to everybody else who's providing values because I think whatever folks' values are, I mean, I think that's an important component of learning about yourself and making sexual decisions. Mm -hmm. It's just not our component. Well, and I mean, honestly, in any part of our job as therapists or advocates, you know, our job is to understand people's values, allow people to kind of exist in their own world, but then just give the information. Um, Honestly, some of my favorite part of my job is learning people's values and helping people make decisions within them. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not about shaking up your system or breaking it. I I value systems as a systems therapist. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, so are there any final pieces of information, because we're kind of getting towards the end of the episode, Mm -hmm. that you would want people to know about either the YWCA or people in the field that... Um, either people with disabilities or people working with disabilities or just the world listening. (laughs) I know that's so broad, right? I was like so open there. (laughs) (laughs) So let me do our quick pitch, which is the YWCA of Metro St. Louis offers sexual health and disability education. Primarily right now that education is offered to folks who live in St. Louis um, who have developmental disabilities. So that's what our funding covers. 
Uh, we do individual as well as small group work. And okay. you can reach us at 314-531-1115 um, or... That's probably the best way to get us. So, uh, <laughs> right. and because of our coverage by our def- various funding streams, we can offer these classes at no cost to our clients, which we're super excited about. That's so, excellent. We'd love to have you call us. Thank you. You have been listening to www.aboutsexpodcast.com. If you want to find me, visit www.therapistinstlouis.com. You can also check out my books, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity, or Premarital Counseling at Amazon. And feel free to email your questions to aboutsexpodcast at gmail.com, and we may just answer them online. You've been listening to Christina Manessis. Thank you so much. She saw it. I gave her that like, please do this for me. (laughs) I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. Stay kinky, St. Louis.